We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. And as we do that, I just want to remind you as we're walking through, broaden out bigger picture. Really what we're doing is a, a really slow and, and long walk in developing a biblical worldview. Uh, part of the reason for the slow and long walk is, uh, you think about it, if a worldview, it takes 13 years to submit, that's, that's a pretty slow and long walk. Now, we're not going to do a 13-year study uh, to do that, but we are walking slower, walking through it. And, and one of the key, if you remember back to that, that um, flow chart, for lack of better terms, of the 10 disciplines, uh, you're either going to build your worldview on philosophy or theology. One of those two is going to determine. And which one you determine will directly impact your view of the other as the next category as you build the tree of your worldview. And so when it comes to our theology, who God is, who God is, what God does, how God interacts with those whom he has created, if in fact the God we're talking about has created, it determines everything. It determines everything for you and I and everything that we walk through in a biblical worldview. And that includes, or, or, and that means that if we have false perspectives of who God is, of how God is, it's going to somewhere down the line give a worldview that's out of, out of balance. I don't know if any of you uh, ever attempted to be or, or actually were uh, runners, or maybe you're a walker, but you might notice that unless you choose to walk or run on the middle of the street, if you choose any other part of the street or the sidewalk, there's a slight slant. And if you routinely always walk or run, especially run the same direction, that slant, even if it's slight, possesses the ability to misalign your hips, and in misaligning your hips, all sorts of other stuff starts to not function well. It's the same thing if we have a distortion in our view of God. So that includes when we look at attributes of God, like last week, if, if we do not believe that God is in fact just, it's going to skew our perspective of justice and whether or not we should seek justice. If, if we think that God is just this big old Papa Smurf teddy bear in the sky who's going to make all of us just, at the end of the day, our problem is, is just low self-esteem. And so he's going to make us feel good because he loves us. If we have a wrong view of his love, but that also leads to a wrong view of his wrath, we're going to end up preaching a whole different gospel even if we're using the right terms for God. And so it's vital, just as much as last week we, we focused because of where we stopped and where we chose to, I say we, I guess you didn't get as much of a choice. I kind of chose where we stopped and where we went. Uh, well, well, but anyways, uh, where we focused, we focused on, if you want to say more of the tougher attributes of God, his righteousness, his justice, uh, his wrath, uh, just like if those things are out of balance, Equally tonight, as we look at some of, if we want to say more of uh, the attributes we, we probably more enjoy thinking about is his grace, his mercy, his love, his uh, steadfastness. If any of those are false or skewed, it's going to put us out of balance. And so we're going to dive right in. Last week, we finished with God's faithfulness. With God's faithfulness, we said that God will always do what He has said and will fulfill what He has promised. And really, we could go a step further than that. Not only will God always do what He said and fulfill what He's promised, but God will always be and always act in correspondence with who He says He is. God will always be who He says He is, and He's always going to act in line with how He says He acts. Or put another way, there's never going to be a point if we're really understanding God at his word where we go, wow, God really surprised me today when he acted like that. If we're surprised by how God acts, it's not because God has somehow acted uncharacteristically of himself. It's because you and I did not have a right understanding somewhere of how he, how he acts, how he is. And so God is always 
faithful. He's faithful to do it. He's promises. He's faithful and true to his word. We understand that God's faithfulness can be seen in all sorts of things that we see around us now, but we also understand that on a real personal level, sometimes it's, it's, it's both harder in the moment, but easier to see in reality. We see the faithfulness of God over long stretches of time as he works in and through our lives. And so off of that, uh, God is good the goodness of God. By the goodness of God, we mean God is the final standard of good, and all that God does is worthy of good. Now, what do we mean God is the final standard of good, all that God does is worthy of good? Uh, That impact is simply this. The way that good is defined is not, God is not defined by good. Good is defined by God. That's what I'm trying to say. God God is not defined by good as if goodness is something separate from God or over God or outside of God. What is good is defined by God. It's who he is. It's how he acts. It's what he does. And, and, And because of that, everything he does is good and worthy of good. And by good, maybe what do we mean a little more clearly? We mean that it's morally perfect. It's gloriously generous. It's without error. It's beautiful. It's right. It's good. It's it's who God is and it's what God does. And what does God do? God creates. God creates. Genesis chapter 1. We see God creating in the beginning. Was the, uh, the beginning God created the heavens and the earth? And if my Bible will open up to the right page here. God creates at the end of each day. Um, so it's to be light, day and night. There's... One day, second day, you get to verse 31. God saw all he had made, and behold, it was very good. It was morally perfect. It was gloriously generous. It was right. It was beautiful. It was pure. God creates. What he creates is good. What he creates is good. What he does, his works are good because they reveal his power and his wisdom. But he doesn't just create, he commands he commands, and the commands that he gives, uh, we saw this last week in, uh, in uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 18. The law of the Lord is perfect, delighting the soul, that all that God commands is good because everything that God commands expresses the moral perfection of his character. His commands don't just express the perfection of his character, but his commands show us how to please him, how to walk in line with him. His commands mark out the path with which he blesses, with which his goodness can be known and experienced on a personal level. And that includes his command in John chapter 6 when he's speaking about uh, the work of, Jesus is speaking about the work of the Father, and the people say, well, what is the, what is the work of God? And it's interesting his question, right? Because truthfully, you and I are not saved by works, but by grace through faith. But he messes with them and he he says this, he said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him and the one in whom he sent. What What is the work that pleases God? What is the base work that humanity is called to respond to that pleases God? It's not a work at all. It's you and I resting in faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so his commands show us there's a command. This is the work. This is the work he he calls to. God commands. God gives and his gifts are good because they express his generosity and, and his welfare for the recipients. And here's what we see about God's goodness in Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verse 19. Luke 18, verse 19. You'll know this is the rich young ruler. A ruler questioned Jesus saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. The kind of goodness that God is, is a goodness which is only inherent in God. Which is why for you and I, when we think of when Scripture says something is good, we're going to have to come at that word good from how Scripture defines it based on the character of God and not how culturally we use the word good. And I do think I mentioned that last week, right? If you go see a movie and someone, you say, how's the movie? How was good. You're like, oh, okay, it was average at best. That's kind of how we use the word good in our culture. That's not the kind of good that scripture refers to when it says God, no one is good except God alone. God is good. Psalm 38 or Psalm 34 verse 8. 
makes this statement about God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. And he goes on from there. God is good in his character as a result of him being good. What he creates is good. What he commands is good. What he gives is good. What he says is approve, is worthy and approve, approved of, therefore is good. What he gives is good. Psalm 84 Verse 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Or if you've got a Christian standard Bible, it says uh, he does not withhold the good from those who walk in integrity. The good, meaning his good. All things work together for good. By what good do we mean they're God's good? To those who are called and, and according to his purpose. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us that that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. What God gives is good, and His goodness becomes, for you and I, the basis. When you connect it, remember, all of His attributes are not separate little parts. They are all completely and totally who He is, and in total harmony. And His goodness then ties in uh, with His righteousness, which is where you and I get the basis. And when we get to the category of ethics... How do you and I as believers, what are our ethics? Well, our ethics ultimately find their root in not what God declared, but in who he is. That which is right, that which is morally good, that which is there, it is because God is good. Understand that the weight of God's goodness and, and, and good being defined by who God is, that is the foundation for all of our morality as believers. Is that God is good, and when we twist that, when we declare good that which is not, problems come. God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter, and sweet for, uh, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Remember, woe there, that's a strong word. Woe is not my friend's brother crying in the grass. Woe is me. Woe is, uh, in Scripture, woe is a, a wish of, of wrath upon someone. Woe to the one who calls evil good. Why? Because when you and I call evil good, when we call sin good, what we are doing is taking the very nature of who God is and declaring something that is at its heart opposed to who God is and saying that this evil act is reflective of our God. Woe to the person who says evil is good. God is good. All the time, God is good. It's a test. See how many of you did that back in the day in church. God is good. God is love. By love, we mean this, that God's love is his eternal giving of himself to others. It's God's concern for the welfare of those whom he loves. He unselfishly seeks our ultimate welfare. So his love is an unselfish interest in us for our sake, for his glory. And, and I put it in that way because it's not that God's love is such that he's just obsessed with us where we are just everything to him. Now, we, we looked at that last week, right? God is holy. He is glorious. Uh, he doesn't need us, but he chose to make us. And he wants us. And he wants us in right relationship with him because he's good. And his love is the, the giving of himself. Love is inherently an action, and it's an outward going action because we are going to define love based on God who is love. So look with me, Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 through 8. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of a, by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This is when Moses is giving the final charge and sermon to uh, the people of Israel before they go into the promised land. He said, look, God's love for you wasn't based on how attractive and, and desirous you were in the eyes of the world. 
Instead, God's love for you is tied to his faithfulness of his character and his word to your forefathers. God's love for you. We see, I mean, what's the verse everybody knows? For God so loved the world, the whole world, not just one certain people of the world, not just one certain peoples of the world, but God loved the whole world. Every man, woman, boy, and girl who has lived, does live, will live. God loves the world. And, and what is that love? Well, notice it doesn't just say God so loves the world in which you can, and I sit back and go, oh, well, God's got a sweet little active picture frame of the earth hanging there in space. And when he looks down, he just fills the warm and fuzzies. That's not what that verse says. It says God so loves the world that he sins. God so loves the world that he takes action. And, and what's the action? Who did he send? He sends his son. God gives of himself. He sends his son. Why? So that whoever may believe in him may have eternal life and not perish. Well, well why would we need to believe in him and not perish? Because you and I are by nature due to sin, not good. We are children of wrath, deserving. We've fallen short of the righteousness of God. But God loves us, and He has acted on our behalf. So we, we see this First John chapter four, nine and ten. We, we've looked at that last several weeks. Uh, in this, the love of God is, is manifested to us that He sent uh, Christ. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, to drink God's wrath on our behalf. It's on this basis then. You say, well, what all does this love look like, look like played out? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered, but rejoice, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking in that moment of, of necessarily applying love there to God. He's, he's applying God's love in our lives to how we love each other which means the basis of us being patient with one another, of us being kind with one another, of us not being jealous with one another, of not bragging in the midst of one another, of not being arrogant with one another, of, of not acting unbecomingly, of not seeking our own, of, of not being uh, provoked at this and that, of not taking into account and holding a list of, uh, well, you, you've done 17 wrong things today, pastor, and, and here's number 18 now. Uh, it is not uh, in unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't laugh and, and take pleasure with sin, it, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If that's what love is played out between us, it's because first and foremost, God is love. Because we only love, why? Because he first loved us. And that kind of love is a fruit of the Spirit. Well, what is it that God loves? God loves His image within us. Remember, you and I are made in the image of God, unique from all creation. God loves the image, His image within us. When He looks at us, He sees men and women made in His image. He loves the whole world because God's image resides upon every human being. There is no human who has ever lived that is not an image bearer of God. And understand the massive reality of that for God's love. That means some of the people that are the most wicked and vile to you and I in human history are in fact still made in the image of God and therefore have a value and worth and God does in fact love. Now most of them because we view them as the wicked and worst of history, aren't going to ever experience the overwhelming joy of being objects of God's love because they've rejected Jesus Christ. But it does mean, in fact, that God loves Adolf Hitler. It does mean, in fact, that God loved Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. It means God loves Vladimir Putin. It means God loves ISIS. God does love the whole world, which should be even more grievous to you and I as believers and help us understand God's heart when we think about a passage like Ezekiel last week where God says, I don't delight 
and sending the wicked to hell. I, I wish that you would repent, that you would turn. Why does, why does God wish that they would repent and turn? Because God does, in fact, actually love every man, woman, boy, and girl. But unfortunately, man, woman, boy, and girl can choose to reject Christ's love, to reject the offer of salvation that would take us from being objects of wrath, children who are rightfully deserving of wrath and move us to a place where now, because we are in Christ, we are children on the basis of Christ who are rightfully deserving of experiencing the love of our Father. But also know this, it means, in fact, without any doubt, God loves you. Period. God loves you. And if you're in this room and you're in Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean in His love that He's always pleased with, with what we do. His love is not meant to be taken as a sign of, well, God loves me, so therefore He approves of whatever I do. No. God loves the whole world, and God definitely doesn't approve of everything the world does. But do be clear, God, in fact, loves you. And it's vital that you and I understand this. Ephesians chapter 3, we like to quote the prayer right before this, or right after this, uh, anytime that we're attempting to do something great as a church in church life. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond, but listen to what it says right before that. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before my father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in the inner man. So I'm praying that you'd be strengthened internally by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. So there's, there's a rooting and a grounding. There's, there's a, 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 a a knowledge of and reality of God's love in my life may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know. So I'm being rooted and grounded in love so I may be able to comprehend the incomprehensible magnitude of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And look what it says, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Which means there is a connection to you and I really knowing and embracing and understanding and experiencing the full measure of God's love in our life and our ability to really live in the fullness of God in our life. The fullness of God being the full power of, of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, uh, uh, filling us, being filled up to the fullness of God in our lives. There is a connection there to our actual real understanding of the actual true real love of God. Now I say that from a level of, of, of personal experience. Um, I've shared in brief uh, on Good Friday a little bit about this night in high school where I, I, I was spending some time with the Lord and as God began to walk me through, just really understanding it was my sin that put Jesus up on the cross. And, and that wasn't a moment of salvation. I was saved at five and a half, but it was just this further understanding of the reality of my sin. But here's the real thing that came with that. This is the real reality that moved me to tears that night. It was that in understanding what my sin did to put Christ on the cross, it was realizing all the more what it means when Jesus says, for God so loved. And realizing the weight and the magnitude of what my sin cost, I realize even more so the magnitude of, of God's love because the reason Jesus is on that cross is out of love. Love for the Father, love for me. And you know what the result of that was in the days to come? a richer boldness, a richer freedom, a richer peace, and everyday life walking with the Lord. Now, fast forward, I go to college, go through some pretty hard, uh, pretty, hard pretty life-shaking things in college, and I began to notice my peers around me would speak about the love of God, not, not, in, not in this way, but the love of God was just like... Um, man, it did... <laughs> I can live as pagan as I want, but oh man, it's so good. God loves me. And when I start to feel a little bit of, of guilt and sorrow that, I, that I've, I've lived in this sin and there's this brokenness, let me just go grab one of those love of God pills, pop it in, and I'll feel good again. Now, I'm not knocking. The love of God should absolutely make us feel good, but, but I, watched, I watched the love of God abuse. And here's what ended up happening, though. I, as I began to... Uh, even in my prayer life, I noticed uh, several years down the road, I don't, ever, I don't ever pray to God as Father. 
I only ever pray, Lord, 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 because I don't want to be like all my, all my peers. And on one hand, you can go, that's a little bit of a, of a prideful judgment, Wes. Yeah, it is. And on the other hand, what I had also not realized is all of a sudden, because, uh, again, it doesn't matter what other people say or how other people abuse the love of God. It doesn't change what Scripture says the love of God is. It doesn't change the fact that God's love really is that great and God's love, He really does love you and me. And when you and I really start to process that, there is a key to the fullness of God being played out in our life because God really does love and we need to be certain about it. And some of us, the way we're wired, we're going to struggle more with that than others. But I think any believer at some point in their life, you struggle a little with, wow, God really loves me. Yes. Yes. And by the way, brothers and sisters, there's not one of us in this room that's worse off than when we, we, none of us in this room are worse off than when we were by nature children of wrath. And if God loved us in that way as children of wrath, goodness, there's no way he loves us any less now as sons and daughters. But the enemy likes to whisper that he does. Because if we can start either abusing and misunderstanding the love of God or start really believing that God doesn't love us, it impacts our ability to live out the fullness of the life that God's called us to and knowing the fullness of God in us. Anyways, we got to move forward. God is mercy. Mercy. By mercy, we mean God's goodness towards those in ministry and distress. It is his tender-hearted, loving compassion for his people. It's an interesting term. In, in the Greek, it's the term uh, charis, and, and, it, and it's this idea. In the Old Testament, though, it's this unique term, chesed, and it's, it's a term that we don't have any one English word to fully describe. It takes about three different terms to try to describe it. In fact, when you see in the Old Testament, God called, uh, God is a God of loving kindness. That's usually uh, that term, uh, chesed. And it's, it's this idea that one who is, who is perfect in goodness looks out on those who are in distress, in need, in pain, and there is a, to the core of that good one's being, a, a, a stirring, a movement to act in such a way as to fix the problem and alleviate the pain. Or put another way, if it's not someone in need, it is someone who is in debt and who lacks the ability and favor to ever be able to repay that debt. And this good chesed, this, this one who is merciful, is filled with a compassion, with a loving kindness to act on that person's behalf. This is mercy. You know, it's common, uh, uh, grace is being given what you don't deserve, mercy is not being given what you do deserve. That's a common way that we try to go with those two terms. And, there, and that's, not, that's not a bad way, a bad thing, but the more I began to, to, to pour in and look at mercy over the years, the more I realized it's so much even richer than just not being given what I don't deserve or, or got, not being given what I do deserve. It's realizing that God at one point looked down at you and I and saw us in a need and in a debt that you and I weren't aware of. We were rolling around in the pigsty enjoying it unaware. And God, who is good, looked down and said, I am going to do something to take that child out of the pigsty, to clean them off in splendor and glory, to bring them in my house and adopt them as a son or daughter of mine. And I'm going to do it through Christ. So we see this all throughout Scripture. Exodus uh, chapter 34 Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Then the Lord, uh, the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. You see this. You see this when Moses tell, or God tells Moses at the burning bush that he heard the cries of his people. He sees their suffering and he is acting to deliver them. Psalm 103, verse 13. Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on the one who, the, those who fear him. You see there that the, we're using the word compassion, this stirring to act, to alleviating. It's what gets me in trouble. Um, 
Bethany knows that when it's time to really fight the battle to get Jesse down, I have to go somewhere where I can't hear Jesse cry. Because I hear that little girl cry and my heart is moved. Now, I'm not comparing that on the same level of God's compassion, but you understand the example. I hear that cry, that distress, which really isn't distress because you go pick her up and walk out and she just smiles and she's all good. It's all a trick uh, <clears throat> that, that I'm not tough enough to not fall for. So praise God for Bethany. Um, But my heart is stirred. I hear one I love in distress, and I, and I don't hear that distress and go, well, Jesse's upset. I hear that distress, and I fly off the couch, and I go. So as a father has compassion on his children, even more so the Lord has compassion on those who, who, who fear him. Uh, mercy, right? What does it say in Ephesians chapter 2 and, and showing the hopelessness of our situation that we were by nature, children of wrath, that we were dead. Verse 4, though, Ephesians 2, verse 4, but God being rich, abounding in mercy. What is it that stirs the heart of God to act to save us? God's mercy. God is merciful. With that, if God's mercy stirs him, then his mercy stirs him to act in love and grace, God's grace, God's goodness towards those who are deserving only punishment. That, that time when, when, when God in His goodness, is, if mercy is Him being stirred to action to act, then His goodness is, is acting in such a way where out of His goodness He gives that which cannot be earned, which is not deserved. And understand that. When God gives and when He acts in grace to give, you and I don't deserve it. We also will never be able to deserve it. It's not that you and I right now don't have enough good in the tank, but give us an indefinite amount of time we could get there. No, it's both undeserved now, but it's also never able to even be earned. That's what his grace is. Ephesians 2, for by grace you are saved. How are you and I saved? By the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. How is that grace brought into our life? Not by works of righteousness, but through faith. Through faith, a response of repentance and dependence completely and totally on Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The way I've tried to describe to students before is if this is, and this is, by the way, not the single greatest thing ever made, might be one of the worst, but it's necessary, unfortunately. If this is the greatest possible gift ever made, grace is this. I recognize you need this. This is the solution to your debt. This is the solution to your need. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to help me put it together. There is nothing about you in this gift. In fact, this gift is out of my sheer goodness and being stirred to act on your behalf. I have put all the blood, sweat, tears, everything of this gift has come because of me. But I come to you and I offer you the gift. I say, if you want this gift, understand this is what it means. That's what grace is. It's, it's everything the one who is good has done, giving that which we do not deserve. And grace is not just good. Grace is not just good for the start of the Christian life. But one of the realities is if grace is what saves us, grace is also what carries us. And it's one of the hard realities you and I have to walk through as a believer. What does Paul say? Because of the surpassing, this is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I, I implored, I begged the Lord three times that it might leave. And, and his response, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. It's not that grace is just good enough to save us and then now that we're saved, it's all about how we work. No, it's not about how hard we work now. Yes, we're called to work, but if we don't work out of His grace, 
It will be toil without power. It will be toil without strength. It will be toil in our own effort, which is not good enough. But if we learn that His grace is sufficient, which how do we learn that His grace is sufficient? By the Lord allowing us to be confronted with our own weaknesses and need to continue to depend on Him. Which means this. If you and I are struggling with a sin, you and I don't deserve to get past it. We will never earn our way beyond it, but it, His grace is sufficient for us to be able to stand against it. We learn how to rest in our position in Christ, to rest in His grace. Grace is not just good for the beginning of the Christian life. Grace is sufficient. And when it says sufficient, what does that mean, church family? It's enough. There is nothing else you and I need for living the Christian life but God's grace. Because it's in His grace that we experience His love. It's in His grace that we experience His mercy. It's in His grace that the Spirit fills us. in His grace. And grace isn't just good for the Christian life now. It'll be grace that leads us home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. We also sometimes forget the third verse of that song. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far. Tis grace will lead me home. His grace. God is patient. He's long-suffering, meaning that God's goodness in withholding punishment towards those who sin over a period of, of time. We saw that in, in Exodus 34 just a moment ago. We see that in the story of Cain and Abel, that God sets a mark of protection on Cain, though he's a cold-blooded murderer. We see that in the rainbow after the, the flood, though a world is worthy of complete eradication, there is a, a rainbow to remind the people of, of God's faithfulness and his, his, his faithfulness to not do that again. We see God's patience and long-suffering and spare Nineveh, we see God's patience in 1 Peter chapter 3. God is not slow as some count slowness, but he is patient. He is allowing a period of time to maximize the opportunity for people to respond in repentance and faith. He is patient. He is long-suffering. He will suffer long I think I've, I've mentioned in here, I remember the moment in, in college when I was reading in Jeremiah, and there's this common statement, oh, um, God of the Old Testament, he's so feisty and, and, and angry, and he's zapping people, and, and, and this and that and the other. And then you read Jeremiah 25, where God says this through the prophet, he says, to Israel, and keep in mind, this is an Israel that's engaged in child sacrifice and cannibalism and, and, and wretched immorality, who's defrauding workers left and right, who's enslaved people that, that they have no business messing with. And God says, for 23 years, 23 years, I have called you to repentance. And this is my slight paraphrase, but this, way, this is the implication. For 23 years, I've called you to repentance, and if at any point you had repented, I would have restored you. But you haven't. And so now comes the final straw. There's not an opportunity for me to restore you. It's now we're going to move into what I told you I would do, which is I'm going to allow you to be conquered and exile you. Now, go back to the faithfulness of God. Even in that exile, God's not abandoning them. He's being faithful to bring about a holy people He's being faithful to his covenant to care and walk with Israel. He's being faithful to discipline Israel because he's going to take them into captivity. But what does he do? He also brings them back where ultimately the Messiah will come. So God's faithfulness is, is not gone there. But I, it hit me that day when I realized for 23 years, 23 years, let's imagine this for a second. That means that a prophet stepped on the scene in 1999 99, pre-Y2K, Mac wasn't cool, Twitter, Facebook, MySpace didn't exist. If you had a cell phone, it was big, bulky, and fat. There was no Wi-Fi. You might be rich and have cable internet in your house. Otherwise, you heard the, the dial-up tone. 1999 to now. That's a long time. That's a long time of every day God calling people to repentance and every day people saying no. God is patient. He is long-suffering. 
We see this even in, we see this all over. I won't go there for the sake of time, so we need to get through the last two things. But this is what it also means, church family. Sometimes there's this question. We, we watch and we say, wow, God, I know God, God's word says he's just. But I don't see that justice being played out in the world. And sometimes it's a little easier for me to wrestle through that one because I go, okay, well, God's being really patient with the lost world that doesn't know him and they're doing exactly what the only thing they can do. Where I struggle with it more is when I see we as believers walk in unrepentant, continual sin and I go, Lord, where's like just your hammer? But in reality, it's not that it's some massive intellectual problem. What, what it is, is God is patient even with his own children. But his patience is not to be regarded lightly, according to Romans 2. It's not to be regarded lightly by a lost world because you never know when your last breath is coming and you must stand before a holy God. But it's also not to be taken advantage of as you and I as believers because we know better. And praise the Lord, God is faithful. At some point in that long suffering, he will introduce Discipline. There will all along the way be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is sometimes we struggle because, Lord, where's your discipline over here? But we also sometimes fail to realize, oh my goodness, Lord, thank you for your long suffering with me. Thank you for your long suffering is for years I weighed in and out of living by worry and fear rather than by trust. Praise the Lord for your long suffering. Praise you, Lord, for your long suffering for for all this as I've carried on over here. And when we see it, when it opens our eyes, it should only lead to even further um, humility before the Lord and, and confidence in who He is. God is patient and He is long-suffering. God is peace. By peace we mean this. God's being and His actions are separate from all confusion and disorder. Yet He is continually active in well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneously, simultaneous actions. Here, here's what we mean. One, peace, peace in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, it's all built on the Old Testament idea of shalom, which is the idea of wholeness, harmony. It's harmony and wholeness uh, between someone and God, harmony and wholeness between others, harmony and wholeness with our own person. But, but that played out in terms of how God acts. The kind of peace we're talking about there is that God is not a God of confusion. God's not a God of confusion who is twisty and turny and and acting this way and the other and, and leaves everyone in the dark with no one to figure out. No, God is a God that is, that is a part, that is God of order. 1 Corinthians 14.33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God is not a God of chaos, but of peace. It means when we allow petty little disagreements to, to cause things inside of the church, we're not walking in the character of God because God is not a God of chaos and, and petty disruptions, but a God of peace, a God of order, a God of harmony. It means when you and I are seeking to follow God and we say, you know, I, 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 I have the peace of God about making this decision. What it ought to mean is I, I see clearly God's well-directed leadership. That's why in the words of my grandfather, doubt never means yes. Because God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. Doubt could mean no, doubt could mean wait. But it doesn't mean yes, because God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. Romans chapter 15, verse 33. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Or, or back in Philippians, uh, let your... Be anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving that the peace of God may guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of order, of harmony, of peace. And then lastly, I know it says beauty on there, but we're going to wrap that into blessedness here. Blessedness, here's what we mean. God delights fully in himself in all that reflects his character. God delights being God. God delights being God. He delights in himself. And he delights in his people in the way that we reflect who he is. God delights in 
in himself. He delights why he's pleased by what he creates. It's why he's pleased in what he gives. It's why he's pleased in what he commands. It's as we follow, as we, as we seek to honor, and as we are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit and seek by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to, to walk with him, there is a, a pleasure, a, 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 a delight in his people. And we imitate God's blessedness when we find delight and happiness in all that is pleasing to God. I mean, you get the picture tonight, church family, of a God. I mean, put it all together. God is a being unlike, unlike any. He is holy, holy, holy. He is a being who is absolutely flawless and beautiful in all perfection. I mean, that's what beauty means there below it, that God is desirable. God is beautiful. God is wondrous. And you and I will be able to experience and awe and wonder that beauty because you and I are in Christ. And in his righteousness, we have fallen short. And he's a just God who will deal with that falling short faithfully. He will deal with that falling short in his wrath, the just punishment that falls upon that unrighteousness. He will deal with it because he is, in fact, true. He is the real God. He is the God who presents himself as he really is, and, and he will follow through on his words, and he is faithful to do it. But he is rich in mercy, not in contrast to his wrath and righteousness, but in conjunction, complete harmony with his wrath and righteousness. He is rich in mercy, and, and in seeing those who are by nature objects of wrath, who, who reflect his image, when he looks at us, he sees his image but broken, distorted, out of relationship with him, separated by an eternal chasm. He sees us seeking and, and worshiping things that were never meant to be worshiped. He sees us trying to fill with things that can never fill. He, he sees the needy, the brokenness. He sees the dead, and in his mercy, he is moved with compassion out of loving kindness to act. And how does he act? He acts in love, the giving of himself. He doesn't just give a messenger. He gives his own son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself. He sends his son and his, his son goes, lives the life we failed to live, reflects his image perfectly, walks in perfect harmony and peace and relationship with the Father, dependent upon the power of the Spirit. Because when he took on humanity, he emptied himself, didn't give away his divinity, but he chose not to rely upon it. He lived the life you and I failed to live. He went on that cross and on that cross became our sin with hopes that those of us who would be found in him, that we would be the righteousness of Christ. We would be set right in that standard to be able to not be chained to the floor of sin and death, but to sit at the, the, the table of God and look him in the eyes in freedom and peace and harmony, to know the fullness of his joy. And Jesus came and God faithfully poured out his just wrath on Jesus. And Jesus died. And Jesus rose, conquering the child of sin, death. And Jesus ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God. And the, the Holy Spirit convicts you and I's hearts that we're sinners out of alignment of God that we've fallen short. And all of this is because God so loved us. Always has. Always will. And when you and I respond to that conviction, no matter if it's young and my life at five and a half, no matter if it's long and someone's life at 75 and a half, God hadn't come back because he wants to allow time and his long suffering and his patience that we would come to know him. And, and when that conviction hits and you and I respond and we say, Lord, you're right, I'm repenting, you're right, I'm wrong. And I need you, Jesus, I need you to save me, not just to save me from my sin, but to save me to a right relationship with you because I, I exist for you, by you. And when you and I cry out, we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That same faithful God who is faithful to pour out the just punishment of sin is the same faithful God who is just to declare us righteous by Christ's blood. He is the same God then who is faithful to carry us. He is the same God then who acts in that grace to give us the best of the very goodness of himself that we don't deserve and we will never be able to earn. And it's that same grace that carries us throughout the Christian life. It's that same grace that leads us home. 
as we follow a God whose goal is not to make our lives confusing, disorderly, and chaotic, but a God who, who leads us clearly and directly in his peace, even though as he leads us, it may take us in some places that are very broken and outwardly chaotic. But as we walk through there, there is his peace guarding our hearts and minds. Until the day he calls us home, and we will behold his glorious holiness and beauty and awe and wonder forever. That's who God is. This is who God is, the triune God. This is how God acts because it is who he is. Amen. Praise him forever. So, um, like always, if you've got questions, feel free to grab me, call me, email me, text me. Next week, this is where we're going to go. There's, there's an aspect of God we've not touched on because it gets, it gets prickly and people get pretty... Uh, uh, animated with it. And so we're going to look at it next week, which is this. Okay, if God, what about God's providence, his sovereignty? How is God actually in control, but, but at the same time interacting with us? And so uh, it's not going to necessarily be just Calvinism and not Calvinism next week, but it is going to be the bigger question of what does it mean that God is sovereign, that, that God's providence, he acts, but at the same time, he acts in that way in, in relationship with men, women, boys, and girls who seem to have some level of free will. We're going to look at that next week as we kind of round out who the character of God is and then try to apply that, broadly speaking, into our worldview. So church family, thanks for being here. Let me pray us out, and uh, we will stay in fellowship or see you Sunday. Father, thank you that you, who you, you are who you are. Lord, my words fail to convey in any way the magnitude and glory of any one of your attributes. And God, I think when we look at all your attributes, what it should fill us with, if, if in fact we are in you, Christ, it should fill us with the humility that takes seriously who you are. Take seriously sin, but in taking seriously who you are, Lord, it's also a humility that basks in confidence, that boasts in you who are good and gracious and merciful, who love us and who are righteous and who are just. And God, and in boasting in you, it should lead us to a, far from a fear from you, Lord, it should lead us to a kind of confidence that you see in little kids with their parents who love them. God, you tell us to run into your throne room and the words you use are with boldness and confidence on our best of days, on our worst of days, on our ugliest of days. So Lord, may our faith be strengthened where we do not believe an aspect of your character. Lord, may we confess that. May we um, shoot those lies of the enemy out of the sky. May we stand behind and raise up our shield of faith. May we dig our feet clothed in the gospel of peace in. Lord, when the enemy comes near with those things, may we take out the sword of the Spirit, your word. And Lord, as we pray, may we stand in your grace because your grace is sufficient and you are good. And it's to you we look, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.